It's Saturday, December 12th, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors with Airmail. Welcome to the show. Well, ho, 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 Michael, and happy holidays. We have got an episode for you all today. What do you got there, St. Nick? I'd prefer to go by Mrs. Claus, but it's up to you. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I don't know the gender pronouns right now, so how about just Claus? Claus is good. I go by that, too. So uh, we have a new issue of Airmail out today. It's juicy, it's delightful, it's full of rich people behaving badly, one of our favorite subjects. And on the episode today, we're going to talk about a couple important things. The first is uh, the race to the vaccine by the one percenters. Of course, you know they all have a different strategy. Uh, Who wants to wait until April? Come on. Uh, And then we're going to speak with Candace Bergen, actress, painter, legend about her new Steven Soderbergh film, Let Them All Talk, which I watched last night, Michael, and I loved. I watched it too. All right. Well, Michael, let's kick things off. Okay. We really should talk about this VIP vaccine situation here. So Holly Peterson did a great piece for us this week about the conversation that everyone is having, you know, on the toniest Zoom conversations in the United States and far beyond, which is, do I really have to wait until the spring to get this vaccine? You know, now that it's rolling out, uh, certainly in the UK, with the United States to follow imminently, uh, a lot of people wonder why they have to, you know, wait in line for this. And naturally, they're finding a few clever workarounds. Yeah, it's not just the conversations that are having. I would I would call it the scheming conversations the 0.01% are having. As always, this is sort of like animal farm. It's just like, you know, some animals are more, are more equal than others. And you're seeing it. This started to happen a while ago in New York City and, and Silicon Valley and other places, uh, Miami, where the, the, the wealthy, it was, we started with concierge medical services, right? Where you sort of like paid, you know, $10,000 a year and you had access to your doctor at all times. And, and, a lot of these people sort of saw the benefits of this in the in the early days of COVID, where they got their own private testing and speedy results, where everyone else was waiting in you know two week long lines. Now, of course, as the rollout has been uh, it started to come, and and where the CDC has punted everything to the states, there really is no way to how it's going to be rolled out. But my favorite part of what Holly's found in her reporting is the fact that you know in New York, the state development executive order has included that some of the um, sort of frontline workers who should be vaccinated immediately are people who work at, quote, bank and lending institutions or people who perform services related to the financial markets. Now, you and I, Ashley, both know services related to the financial markets in New York City means basically hedge funders and people who move money around, right? Yes. And we already know that some of these financiers have been taking special exemptions with the travel ban. Like, you know, I have to go to London. Otherwise, how can I get this deal done and save the economy? Yeah, I mean, it's as Holly writes, you know, the the obnoxious buff, newly inoculated head fungers will will only be more sort of obnoxious as they high five each other over the Wagyu fillets at expensive steakhouses. But I think it's it's crystallized by the quote she's got from a doctor who chooses to remain nameless. And these are his words, not mine. He says, the entitled are more entitled. Jerks are bigger jerks and the assholes are bigger assholes. It gets to, you know, people wanting to jump the line and just believe that, you know, now making up conditions where they think they 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 need they need that vaccine immediately because you know if you want to get to Stad uh, in time for January you need that you need the, the vaccine right well exactly and one of the funny tidbits in Holly's piece is that there's a health resort in Germany called Lanzerhof that may be benefiting from an earlier delivery of the vaccine so expect to see a lot more stories on this front coming out in the next 
you know, few weeks and months. But I can't wait to sort of, you know, watch the dinner party conversation unfold, especially in the early to mid part of 2021. Like, oh, when did you get your vaccine? I suspect it will become the next status symbol. Yeah, it, it makes the Lori Laughlin varsity blues kind of uh, uh, college bribery scandal look like penny ante stuff where this is now like, you know, it's this is going to be something they can sort of quietly brag about because it shows, again, access to medical care and access to your getting your doctor in there. And I, I got my my vaccine quite early, but, uh, you know, it was uh, through special arrangements, right? Yes, totally. On a happier subject, Ashley, did you get a tree yet? I did get a Christmas tree. Yes, sir. Wow, you sound so excited about it, Grinch. Yeah, I'm not as Grinchy, Michael. You know, I bought a fake. So I saw Alessandra. Alessandra and I had uh, outdoor dining in Sag Harbor. It was 30 degrees. She was bundled up. Like I couldn't. I could only see her eyes. She had like a hat on and a scarf wrapped all around her face. And I said, are, are you just trying to remind me of what your life was like when you were working for the New York Times in Moscow? I mean, it was, <laughs> but we had an excellent time and we were talking about Christmas trees. And I actually think that I scandalized her because she was asking where should I get a tree? And I was telling her where we got ours. But I said, but you know what, for this year, just get a fake tree. And she was appalled. But Michael, I ordered my first fake tree this year. Granted, it's for my kid's room. Um, but I love this thing. I took it out of the box. No pine needles on the floor. I plugged it in. It's like a frosted pink color and it had the lights already in it. I was like, this is genius. You know, the only bad thing about getting your fake tree, I'm just thinking about like you're, you're, you're depriving yourself of a great uh, source of, of pleasure that I know you, you, you have is your Roomba will not be able to pick up the pine needles this year. I mean, you know me. Who would I be without my Roomba, Michael? I know. I know how much you enjoy it. And like, like Roombas are made for like just eating up all those pine needles. Yeah, they are pretty good. You do have to empty them a lot. That's so that you really know how dirty your house is thanks to the Roomba. <laughs> I think that would be their ad slogan in a perfect world. But you know, do you know about the great Christmas tree shortage in New York City? What? So you're you're actually were probably smart to get get one out out east, a fake one. But so. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a shortage of Christmas trees this year, I guess, because I, I read first of all the Canadians are all stuck inside and they're buying up all the trees because they want them. Usually get shipped down here. So Saturday, Brooke and I go to buy our tree. The place we usually go to buy it is this deli on Fifth Avenue uh, around the corner, a little corner deli. They didn't have their trees this year. The guy said he basically couldn't afford to, to bring them in because it was he didn't know how much he's going to sell. So then we go around the corner. This place on Seventh Avenue, Eleventh Street. The first tree we look at, guess how much he wanted for it? Like just a six, six foot tall tree, little Douglas fir. Guess how much he wanted for it? $284. $300. Oh, come on. $300. Absurd. So then we look at this other one and it's sort of like a Charlie Brown version. And, you know, which I have no problem with. I, I love to, you know, taking home the little, the little scrawny, scraggly guy. And how much for this? And the guy says, I'll give you that for $180. So here's my confession. You know what we did? Speaking of like, this is, and I'm going to scandalize you now. And I like, I went there kicking and screaming, but I was like, I'm not going to pay $180 for a tree. You're a reasonable person. So some guy who's like, comes out of his little hut stoned and, you know, like blah, blah, blah. So we walk over to Union Square where the previous day Brooke had seen in front of Whole Foods, they're selling trees for $60. That's more expensive than they used to be. When I used to, last year, I mean, forever, I've always gotten my tree at Whole Foods um, and they were 35. You're getting screwed no matter how you slice it, Michael. Right. So, but I'm like, I, cause I used to pay $50 on the guy at the deli. Now I'm like 60, but I like, got a beautiful tree. 
gave it to Jeff, gave the money to Jeff Bezos, which made my, my blood boil. But, you know, anyway, we got a tree. Happy holidays to all. Happy holidays to all. So, Michael, we're going to talk about the new Steven Soderbergh film. It's called Let Them All Talk. And for me, the most striking thing about this movie was not the three award-winning iconic actresses in it. That would be Meryl Streep, Diane Weist, and our guest today, Candace Bergen. But it was the fact that this film takes place on a cruise ship. I think this is a sign, Michael, of how far we've come with this COVID situation, where now I see a cruise ship and I kind of break out in hives. The Queen Mary too, to be specific. Maybe this is a, a, a sign of what's happened to me in these last nine months during lockdown and having gone, being unable to go anywhere and travel. At the end of the movie, Brooke and I were like, well, just, then we were getting ready, brushing our teeth last night. And Brooke said, what did you think of the Queen Mary and, and, and making the crossing, uh, uh, you know, from like New York to London? And I was like, that looked kind of cool. Like, I mean, I'd never entertained that in my life before. Right. And all of a sudden, like, yeah, cruise ship with 5,000 people. And, you know, what was the, the original, like, uh, petri dish incubator for, for COVID? And I'm, I'm, I'm going to, like, I'm somehow, like, it's appealing to me now. It does look unspeakably glamorous. You know what, Michael? Nobody wants to hear us talk about this. We've got Candace here. Okay. Let's get Candace on the line. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy to have you on Morning Meeting. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, Candace, Michael and I both spent last night watching your incredible new movie. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Four thumbs up, actually. And our first takeaway from it was she is filming this on a cruise ship. It seems so quaint in 2019. Not this ship. It, the ship itself is so elegant. And you guys were filming it as people were on there um, making the crossing. And some of them didn't know you were filming a movie, apparently, right? Yeah. I don't think most of them knew. So your character, Roberta, is obviously uh, living in Texas. She work, is working in lingerie sales, which has got to be kind of an enlightening and demoralizing profession, right, in some regards. Like, we've all had our bras fit. Yeah, but I think demoralizing is more what you want here. I mean, she had been a wealthy Texas matron, and um, and that was taken away from her by Meryl's character. And so she's bitter, and she's right. <laughs> but I mean it was it was wonderful to work with the two of them and and they're they're both of them so talented that things were were oddly smooth and then there's the one scene where Meryl and I have it out and sort of try to settle scores and Meryl was so dazzling during that scene that I thought if only I had a script, I would give anything to have lines now because I don't know what she's talking about. She knows so much about everything. And I just thought, Stephen, if you don't cut, I'm, I'm just, I, I was so out of my body. I was just looking down saying, stop it. I can't do this. It had its challenges for me because... I don't have any of that stuff. I, I, I think we'd both disagree. We respectfully disagree. Yeah. <laughs> I think there were, there were both, there were, there were moments, and I don't want to give it away for, for the audience because the movie's just coming out this weekend, but there were a couple of moments in there where, I, you know, you transcended. And, and, and I know, you know, just reading, and, but it's, it's, it was almost like, um, I felt like how people misunderstood you before you did Murphy Brown, right? And you sort of changed perceptions then, you know, like what your what your talent was. And I think this is just another gear that I think there's moments in it where my wife and I both sort of like sat back in the couch, like, whoa, what is she? Whoa, 
coming in hot here. It was just so I thought it was a side of your your performance, your your skill that I'd never seen, and it was fantastic to see it. Well, thank you. It was great working with those guys. I bet. Yeah. What was it like to work with Soderbergh? He is the most focused, brilliant, restless mind. I mean, you know, he's trying to make cinema, which is a really complicated medium, more interesting for himself because it was a little boring just doing hit after hit movie. And so then he did a movie on his iPhone and then he did a movie on a little camera that was like a brownie camera practically. And and he did it in 10 days. I mean, the movie was shot in 10 days. Nobody's ever done that. He has a fantastic brain. Now, Candace, we've been following Bergen Bags for quite some time. <laughs> and we love your work there. And we absolutely love your coffee mugs. But what's next for you career-wise? After you've done this incredible Soderbergh film, we kind of want to see you on a TV show. Would you be open to doing something like that? Hopefully when everything starts filming again, Lord knows we're watching television and movies like we've never done so before. Yeah. And it's been fabulous, hasn't it? I mean, there's been great TV. Yeah. And it's like, this kind of the only thing we have to live for, to be honest. I mean, our families are fine and all the rest, we love them, but um, <laughs> nothing like having a great, you know, like let them all talk. Actually, Michael and I both said it kind of made our week because we finished the crown, you know, we needed something <laughs> new. So thank you so much. Just keep doing your good work. <laughs> well, and I, I assume you saw the undoing. <laughs> Don't talk to Michael about it because we have very divergent opinions about it, but I loved every second. Me too. Michael, what is your beef with that? I felt it was a, a movie about a, a coat with a lot of hair around it. I didn't see... But Michael, you're you're wiping out Hugh Grant, who was fantastic. He was fantastic, right? Hugh was exceptional in that film. See, I want to see a movie, the next whatever, so whoever talked to your agent, and I was Brian or whoever, like, get <laughs> you and Hugh Grant in a film or a miniseries. That's the There you go. Right? That I would do. Michael, you know what, Candace, don't even worry about it. Michael and I are going to get this done for you. We'll show <laughs> on it. We'll talk to Brian. It's all good. Don't worry. I had a, but, you know, I had a question, Candace. You made me think earlier, because when you're talking about working with Steven, and then I had seen a photograph of him filming on the ship and he was doing it sort of like kamikaze style where he was just sitting on a little um, converted wheelchair. Yeah. And it, it reminded me of Louis Mal and all those guys in that generation of filmmakers, right? You're exactly right. Louis, the first tracking shot he did, he used a baby buggy and put the camera in a baby buggy and wheeled down the Champs Elysees. I know. So just it, to me, it's it was it listening. It was like this is you know coming full circle of the, the these guys sort of going back to you know that generation of great French filmmakers. So I thought like Louis, it reminded me like wow, like. The, the, how, how everything touches each, each other. What's your favorite film of Louis? Oh, probably Au Revoir Les Enfants, because it was such a personal film of his. Yeah. And he agonized over getting it right. And it was such a, such a significant film and so loaded and about right. so much. And I visited him when he was shooting on location and a bitterly cold uh, place north of I mean and and to see him make that film and it was very moving to me yeah and it's I think it's a an extraordinary film for sure I always loved Elevator of the Gallows which I thought was just you know well that was great yeah I mean that was his second movie 
second movie yeah but it's you know it's all there you know you can see the whole template all the other of the town yeah and it's the wtf i mean it's like what's happened <laughs> <laughs> then it, it, i was thinking because i was thinking of all the actors that he worked with i'm gonna play a quick game with you okay okay so um you have to say it just it just marcello mastriani or elaine delon marcello oh. okay okay marcello or jean paul belmondo marcello hmm Marcello uh, or Burt Lancaster? Marcello. <laughs> Marcello or Wally Shawn? Well, I've worked with Wally Shawn. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I would say Marcello. Good. Okay. We trumps all. There we go. With no offense to Wally, who's very talented. Yeah. But I just, Marcello came for dinner one night when Louie and I were when Louis was still alive, and he was so charming. He was charming in the way that only Italians can be, frankly. He And I, I was just sort of like goo. I was just <laughs> so in his spell. He was as Fellini wrote him. Yes. Yeah. My last question about I mean, Louis' films, if that's okay, if I ask, like, do you think all the, the, the quote-unquote controversy over Pretty Baby was justified at the time? Or would it, like, what is, you know, at the time it was such a big deal. I was, like, I was, when I was thinking, I was like, I forgot that was such a big deal. But did that have an impact on Louis? Did it, did it, did it hurt him at all? I mean, did it upset him at all? Well, it, it certainly hurt the movie as it was yeah. being launched. And the objection came, as I remember, mostly from the South. Right. Right. And it was a, a, a very frank film, but I guess it was the, the bare breasts that they objected to yeah. and the fact that she was obviously a prostitute. But but it was such a remarkable film on the other And the fact that it was an 11-year-old girl. Oh, yes, there was that part. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're just as sensitive now. And I, I don't think we're wrong, really. I mean... Because you, you, we have to be as protective as possible. Yeah. And Louis liked to push the envelope. So you talked in Maureen's piece about going to the black and white ball and you've got your bunny ears, right? Yes. Did you have a date that night? No. Wow. It wasn't like, you know, bring a, a guy. It was to get in at all was a miracle. So you, it, it was not a plus one invitation? No, no plus you. ones. Okay. But how many men had given you their phone number by the end of the night is what we really want to know. I don't think anybody, everyone was very focused on themselves. Is there anything we haven't asked you, Candace? No, but this has been a, a richer interview than most. So I'm very grateful to you for that. I'm jealous of Chloe Mall. okay? Like, I kind of want, like, Candace to be my mom. No offense, mom. No offense, Barbara. We love you guys. But I mean, Candace is like the coolest uh, of the cool. I remember I used to see her at Soul Cycle in East Hampton and have a total fangirl moment. Really? Yes. She had, you never... she had a brief Soul Cycle phase. We'll touch on this in her next uh, conversation with us. Soul Cycling with Murphy Brown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful. And now, you know, if you need to get anyone a holiday gift, uh, you can just buy one of her T-shirts or coffee mugs. Or, or It's a very good gift. Yeah. And uh, there's plenty of time to get one. Cool. All right. So, Michael, um, do you have anything else that's sort of top of mind that you'd like to talk about? I've got a really random thing I need to talk about. Oh, please. Do you know about uh, a project called Uderopa? No. <laughs> this is a little segment I'm going to call Stump Ashley. I, I, speaking of holidays and trapped at home, so there, I, I, I found this story the other day. Um, there is now a $3 million uh, project in, in, in Europe called Oderopa, where they're working to 
use AI to identify and recreate the smells that existed between the 16th and 20th centuries. They're kind of making this library of smell. Have I rendered you speechless? I don't even know what to make of this, Michael. I mean, it... <laughs> I think this is a little segment I'm going to call, does anyone want to talk about it? This is all I've got. The answer is yes, Michael does. What is your favorite scent? Like, you're an olfactory person, so what do you like to smell? I like tuberose. How about you? My favorite fragrance is Chanel's Sycamore. I was worried I sounded snobby. I'm going to one-up you in snobbishness, Michael. Um, This was a fragrance that I got for free at a Chanel Couture show over 10 years ago in Paris. They had it, you know, handed it out on every seat. That's the dirty little secret of the fashion shows. They used to give beauty products, uh, you know, before like the recession started taking hold. Chanel still is very good about that. But anyway, you used to go to the Couture shows and come home with like, pretty incredible collection of beauty products. So I got this at the Chanel Couture show. It was the one I don't, I'm not really a fragrance person. I generally don't wear it. I love, love, love the smell of this. And I've kept it ever since and sort of rationed it out. And it just puts me in a good mood uh, to smell it. So Chanel Sycamore. Did you do that thing that I'll confess to doing at fashion shows when I've been there? Like, so they put the, they put the little gift under or on everyone's seat. And then some people are too cool or too dumb and they don't take them. They walk out and they just leave them there. Did you take the extra ones? I didn't, Michael, because I was always carrying a small stylish bag, which prevented, presented a problem because then you end up running to all of these shows with like 45 gift bags. I mean, it's a real serious issue. I would have done it. (laughs) And I would have done it for you. I would have been your mule. To, to get out of the Chanel, you know, tape. I would have been like, you know, in, in Wolf of Wall Street with, um, what was the actress's name? Margot Robbie. I would have been like Margot Robbie in Wolf of Wall Street for you, Ashley. I would have taped all those Chanel perfume bottles to met me and, and walked anywhere you wanted in Paris just to, to, to make that happen for you. Michael, we're going back to Fashion Week, you and I. You know, speaking of perfume, though, there's a great piece we got in the issue this week, the Great Lives column, which we do very regularly about someone who's lived a great life recently passed. And it's this guy we call the James Bond of inventors, Peter Florianich, who lived to be 101. And he was known as the uh, James Bond of inventors. But one of the things he invented that changed every woman's life, in, in addition to inventing, he invented the six-color pencil. He invented ski bindings. Fascinating guy. Escaped the Nazis in World War II, climbed over the Alps, got to Switzerland, faked his death in an avalanche when he, when he climbed over the, uh, the Alps. His family thought he was dead. They had a funeral for him. They didn't even know until after the war he survived. Anyway, he comes out of the war and uh, he has a great quote about how his, how industrious he was in his life, where he says, drop me anywhere in the world, and in a year's time, I'll entertain you at my house. Basically saying he can, you know, uh, it's sort of a version of, if I have a lever, I can move the world. But anyway, one of the things he invented that changed the, the world, not just the second cool, the, first, the, the, the other cool thing was, you know, the sideways lighter that Sean Connery used in 007 Dr. No? Dunhill one. He invented that. He sold it Dunhill. But the thing that you're going to, that changed your life, Ashley, is his first big success was the compact perfume spray, which he sold to Elizabeth Arden. Uh, and we became like, for women, they could like carry a little compact perfume in their small bag like you you would do in Paris and everything would be cool. So there he was. Great little story. 
You know what? I can never get enough of reading about these great lives, Michael. They just inspire us to do better every single day. Be more productive. Be more productive. Escape the Nazis. Fake your death in an avalanche and uh, become friends with King Farouk and hang out in Monaco, which is, what, which is what he did while he was still inventing stuff. These guys are not spending four hours a day trying to figure out how to organize their pantry the way that I am. You know, like they just had different priorities. But maybe we need to get the inventor of the Roomba on here. Oh, I would love to meet that person. Michael, important question. Have you finally finished The Crown? No. Oh, my God. Really? I'm, I'm telling you, it's like a, it's like a, it's like going down into your wine cellar and knowing, okay, now I only have five bottles left of this vintage. Am I going to drink them all in one sitting or am I going to space them out and maybe get to Christmas with these? That's my goal. I just finished watching the episode uh, Fagin about the guy who uh, broke into the queen's bedroom. Michael, usually you are so ahead of everything that's happening in culture by a period of four to six months. And you're woefully behind here, but we're going to let you do it. It's okay. We accept you for who you are. However, I finished it obviously ages ago because I have no self-control. But I came home and Netflix, I, then I started watching Diana in her own words on Netflix, which is heaven. And then Netflix recommended for once the algorithm got it right. And Netflix recommended The Queen. Do you remember that film with Helen Mirren? Oh, of course. And it's, it's great to watch it because you can see the template for what Morgan's doing here. I mean, even the gigantic stag wandering around and all this stuff. And like, yeah, I love that film. What did you think? Well, it struck me, you know, Helen Mirren can do no wrong in my mind, but neither can Olivia Coleman. So it's really interesting to contrast the two performances because Helen Mirren presents, dare I say it, a sexier version of the queen. She seems to have this really rich inner life and a lot of, you know, opinions and thoughts and passions that she perhaps dials back in terms of her public persona. But we don't get that sense from Olivia Coleman's performance. Coleman has her as being much more of a sort of straightforward character who says it like it is, but who doesn't have a lot going on aside from, you know, her hunting and her corgis. No, I agree with you. But look, you know, Helen Mirren, whether she's playing the queen at age 80 or like, for me, it's impossible to get past the fact it's Helen Mirren and she's always sexy. She's always been sexy. There's something in the eyes, right? There's something in the eyes. And I also have trouble looking at her without thinking of that paparazzi shot of her in the red bathing suit, which like, honestly, I'm going to put that on my wall because she is my icon. Like, I want to look like that. Life goals, right? Life goals. Hashtag yeah. life goals. I mean, I love it. But her Elizabeth is just such a different character than Olivia Coleman's. but it's really fun to look at both of them in contrast. You know how much I love Peter Morgan. And I, you're reminding me now, there's a scene in there where Diana has died, right? And Charles finds out and he has to ask his mother if he can borrow the plane to go to Paris and bring back her body, right? And there, she's just sort of perplexed by that, right? Yeah, I mean, you sense that Coleman's queen would have just taken that more head on. Right. Mirren's Elizabeth is a bit less pragmatic, right? You know, you, you get the sense that she's sort of more annoyed by Diana's whims and she expresses it more vocally. And so I think you can get a better sense of the conflicted relationship with the royals have with Diana in, in the queen versus in the crown. Anyway, we could talk about the crown all day and all night. And Michael, maybe we should have another podcast when the next season comes out that's just you and I riffing on the crown each episode by episode. I would do that. Yeah. 
Peter Morgan, by the way, we know you listen to Morning Meeting, so we're ready. Whenever you want to come on, we can talk about this in great detail. We'll do a two-hour episode. Hopefully, that will give us enough time. We're here for you. Okay, so you watched The Queen. You you sort of like jumped back, okay? You know what I've been delaying my as I've been pushing back my crown watching? You know what I've been watching? The new season of The Great British Baking Show. No. God forbid. I don't understand why people like that show, but I shouldn't say that because Graydon loves it. Anyway. I love it. Graydon, we're, we're aligned. Uh, okay. I'm on the ice. I'm on the, I'm on the ice flow now. Speaking of great operatic creations, I've been watching Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 in preparation for Francis Ford Coppola has now re-edited uh, and, and gone back into Godfather 3, which he is releasing now, is The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, and it comes out this weekend. Uh, we've got a nice piece that came out actually out this week by Alex Oliveira, one of our uh, editors here. But this is a movie that's been, you know, never seen as kind of as an equal of one and two, whether you want to say that's because Sofia Coppola re- replaced Winona Ryder as the daughter or whatever problems you have with it. But Coppola's now gone back in and given us this, so... I'm excited to watch that as well. Same, same, same. All right, Michael, we've given everybody their marching orders for the weekend. You've got your watch list. You know what you need to read. And I think uh, it's probably time to read us out, I'm afraid. All right. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster, with our theme music being The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. And you can find Ashley and myself on Instagram as well. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thank you for joining us.